What would you do if you got scammed? Would you suffer in silence or would you do something about it? Well, I got scammed once and this is the story of what I did. I'm Justin Sales, the host of The Wedding Scammer, a true crime podcast from The Ringer. And for seven episodes, we're hunting a con man, a guy with a lot of aliases, a guy who's ruined a lot of weddings. And with the help of some friends, I just might be able to catch him. Listen to The Wedding Scammer on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app and you're good to go. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at UGG.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me in the studio... He's also moving to 2025. It's Andy Greenwald! That that was a good one. It sucks. So today, Andy and I are having just a ton of fun with each other. Mm -hmm. And it's just a lot of laughs, a lot of goosing one another about Mm -hmm. the state of Hollywood. One of the things we're talking about today, Andy, is many of our beloved, most uh, anticipated shows Mm -hmm. of 2024 moving to 2025 due to labor slowdowns and all Mm -hmm. that stuff. And uh, 2023 has been a mixed bag, I think. Yeah, you mean like personally or? or, or? I've, I've enjoyed myself. I've also yeah. had some some tough times. It's just like everybody else. Don't you hate knowing 2024 is going to suck though? <laughs> like it is, it is kind of wild. Yeah. Sitting here just watching everybody clear out 2024 so we can really focus on what matters most to us, <laughs> electoral politics. <laughs> Do you think that's part of why some of these things are like, you know what? We don't really want to air during the summer of 2020. No, they want to air in 2025 when America will be ready to heal again. That's right. That's right. When we all become like the uh, what, what are the Wally robots that are just. I feel like HBO in, and we'll talk about this and moving some of the things. They're like, well, on the on the downside, like we won't air White Lotus in 2024. On the plus side, in 2025, the word white is in the title, so that might be popular. <laughs> Right? Well, that's two audible Kaya cackles in one week. That's Kaya knows the rules are different on Thursday. Uh, Greenwell, great to see you. Great to see Kaya. We're in a new studio today, so the energy is a little bit different. We have a lot of natural light pouring in. It's really interesting. They've so we've opened up the floor plan on us. We're usually in a like a, a small uh, dark warren, which is where we belong. That's where I like it. But today, that is true. Kaya can attest to this that often when I walk into the studio, Chris says it. In almost total blackness. Yeah. Like Prince recording an album in 1989. It's like, is it a little dark in here? But I, yeah, I want I is. want my office to look like a mm-hmm. candlelit study. Yeah, but you don't have the candles. Right. And then today we're in a studio that has the, the door, mm-hmm. as most rooms do. Yeah. This is a cutting edge podcast. But we also have a big uh picture window facing a corridor. And I imagine this is were we Hoda Kotby and company. This is where we would host the Today Show. Yeah. And the fans would stand outside with their signs. Um, people would like wave rubber chickens and then like have bottles of water and then pour the water on the chicken. Yeah. 
to celebrate their affinity for you and also for podcast bits we reference but haven't actually talked about in upwards of two years. <laughs> I've also like moved past boiling my chicken accidentally. <laughs> if people were waving signs outside, yeah. Andy, do mm-hmm. you think they would say, Casey Bloys, DM me? If if they were here today, yes. Because yeah. as we learned, and we're going to talk about this, that our friend of the pod and head of HBO, Casey Bloys, now has learned to just slide into people's DMs. Yes. And not engage an army of Twitter bots. Uh, let's just get right into it. So this week, Rolling Stone published a piece about some revelations regarding HBO uh, Max uh, programming head, Casey Bloys, employing the use of burner Twitter accounts to send feedback to television critics mm-hmm. who he disagreed with. Mm-hmm. In 2020 and 21, Bloys reportedly instructed HBO Senior Vice President Kathleen McCaffrey to have someone, in this case an employee named Sully Tamori, respond to critics from the account of a fictional Texas herbalist and mother named Kelly Shepard, who had four followers. This account sent messages to Rolling Stone's Alan Sepinwall and the New York Times' James Poniewozik, as well as, I believe, Vulture's Catherine Van Arendonk. Yes. Uh, Rolling Stone. This is a a quote from the Rolling Stone piece. The messages are part of a trove of material Mm. being prepared for a previously unreported wrongful termination lawsuit filed in Los Angeles Superior Court in July by former HBO staffer Tamori against HBO, HBO SVP Kathleen McCaffrey, Francesca Orsi, HBO's head of drama, that's Francesca Orsi, sorry, as well as Abel the Weekend Tesfe and two producers for The Idol. It's important to this, me. This company's gratitude for that project only continues to grow. <laughs> it really is the gift that keeps on it giving. Is. Um, okay, this is a quote from Casey Bloys, who happened to appear in front of the media today uh, in a previously scheduled appearance to do, I think, to talk basically about the 2024 slate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it was like an upfront. I think it was just kind of like a... Yeah, I mean, HBO doesn't traditionally do upfronts. It was a meeting with the media at WBDHQ. This is a quote from Casey. It's very important to me what you all think of the shows. When you think about that and you then think about of 2020 and 2021, I'm working from home and doing an unhealthy amount of scrolling through Twitter. And I come up with a very, very dumb idea to vent my frustration. Obviously, six tweets over a year and a half is not very effective, but I do apologize to the people who were mentioned in the leaked emails, texts. Obviously, nobody wants to be a part of a story that they have nothing to do with. But also, as many of you know, I have progressed over the past couple of years to using DMs. (laughs) So now when I take issue with something in a review or take issue with something I see, many of you are gracious enough to engage with me in a back and forth. And I think that is a probably much healthier way to go about this. This is weird because I have been involved in a spirited back and forth in my Instagram DMs with an herbalist. Yeah, but that's actually more about like a personal health question. (laughs) That's because that's just about gut health. (laughs) Which I've become. Uh, I'm like, yeah. Nicotine lozenges are basically the same thing as vitamin C, yay or nay. <laughs> and then you just Kelly? you just keep DMing <laughs> until you get a yay. <laughs> well, I think that broadly, I, I I'd like to think that we as Americans can agree on on two things here. One, everybody went fucking crazy in 2020 and 2021, sure. and Twitter and social media in general has broken us. Not excusing, which seems like, you know, seemed it, I think it, it is what he said. It was sort of a silly way to, to lash out. I think what we could also take away from this is when this tracks with a person that we know, very passionate about his shows, very passionate about defending creative decisions that he and his team make. Uh-huh. Um, ultimately, though, the thing about this that I find sort of 
it's 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 funny i think is that i can't think of a least effective way to engender change in a person or in the world than twitter yeah you know i i that that's that's the funniest thing about it let alone the fact that the tweets the targeted tweets were remarkably tame uh, in the sort of spectrum of Twitter mm. responses, mm. yes, these would feel pretty constructive. So reading from what we learned from the Rolling Stone piece, um, Catherine Van Arendong from Vulture and New York Magazine took issue with the trench warfare flashbacks in Perry, in Mason, Perry yeah. Mason season one. I also did. <laughs> I feel like, to be honest, I I imagine that our AM to the PM co-host, uh, Matthew Reese, is not listening to this podcast. Do you know right. he just closed his boat business? No, why? Yeah, I... We'll have to get him back on to talk about it. I was shocked. Do you think I, the two stories are related? I think we got to see how high this thing goes. Yeah. But anyway, so she she was critiquing, sort of snidely made a comment, like not snide, but like not direct. Basically, was just like, with access to a screener, can we please stop doing this sort of thing? Yeah. And uh, I guess it was Kelly Shepard or, or or one of her her ill one, responded one of like Texas's great herbalist. Like how how dare you question the earned trauma of our greatest generation? Yeah. Something like that. Okay. But it was funny because isn't the greatest generation supposed to be the World War II generation? Well, not according to some herbalists in Texas yeah. and or the heads of HBO programming content. I, we're, we're, we're being light about this because I don't really know what else there is to say. Like, he is a, a friend of the podcast and someone that we've, we've spoken to on and off the record and has been always pretty straightforward with us about his, both his opinions, his opinions about our opinions, and some really, really remarkable um, over-the-counter supplements <laughs> that he sourced from Texas that have changed, and changed my, my head. It just changed your gut yeah. health. Uh, I have a very similar take that this is a bad look and probably a bit embarrassing for Casey yeah. and it's not that big of a deal. But uh, I, I, I mean, I have also worked on stories about mm-hmm. the the use of, of burner accounts. Yeah, you have. Uh, and in my case, obviously, we were covering the then Sixers president, Brian Colangelo's possible alleged reported i mean i don't know why i'm using all these caveats use of burner accounts but those were specifically when commenting on mm-hmm. uh the medical states of some of his players mm-hmm. it was really like the 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 sort of biggest infraction there look like it's a bad look but i don't know necess- i don't think that that necessarily there's going to be any changes afoot because of this? Doesn't seem like it. I mean, I, the, we're, and by the way, we're not speaking on the merits of a lawsuit of which we just learned That's yesterday. another thing is like, I, I really, I don't want to be too glib about this. Yes. I don't know what, what, what the deal is with the lawsuit. I, I think if you pull back a little bit, what is interesting to me, and at least my perspective on, on why even someone would be compelled to do this, is that until recently, I think, good reviews and good word of mouth were tantamount to currency for HBO in a way that I think that's not the case for other networks and streamers. The brand of HBO was quality, was making things that you absolutely had to see, um, which translated into subscribers and subscriber fees and the great great, uh, game rolled on. We're in a very different universe now, as is HBO and with some uncomfortable bumps along the way. But I think that that might give you some insight as to why some because that's always the thing that I, I was always a little bit confused by this too. I was grateful for it when I was a like full time functioning TV critic. I I use that word functioning in, with intent. Mm-hmm. That the things that we wrote seemed to be of outsized importance to certain people, and the I don't people who made the things that you were writing. About? Well, no, no. I mean, I understand why like a, a creator would be like we all anyone who creates anything wants to be validated and wants it to be well received. I understand that, 
but in terms of um, people at the highest, highest part of the food chain on that side of it, like network presidents seem to care a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't always entirely sure why, since it, I don't know how much reviews move the needle. But I think in the case of HBO, for a long time, that was part of the fuel that kept them going. So, you know, it's interesting. I, this this is really only tangentially related to the, the, the issue at hand. But I have been thinking a lot recently. You know, you shared some really uh, wonderful art criticism from the New Yorker magazine with me that I had yet to read. Who's the writer again? Jackson Arn. Yeah, and I thought that was... The, Did you read those? Really good pieces. He's and a really good writer. I like the idea because I, I also know that I don't really do this. Um, <laughs> that, like, we return to, like, a, a place of more measured long-form criticism rather than mm -hmm. 140 characters or 280 characters being, like, only a true inbred moron would ever like this episode. Yeah. Slash, this is the goat, you know, or whatever it is. I've never had my my mind changed by Twitter. Like, I've, I've laughed. Right. I've cried. But I've never, I've never been like, ah, you know what? That pithy little comment undid really makes me want to go back and yeah i i, and I think it, i found it i mean this is this is definitely a, a digression but the reason i so I, I i was started reading some reviews by the new yorker's new art critic a guy who i know nothing about other than i think he's a brilliant writer and and critic named jackson Arn. and it was brilliant writer <laughs> this is chris's new thing is imitating me using my imitation of my father which is you know really devastating yeah. but like it's good <laughs> you know I feel like I got very defensive because Andy asked um, my my late father who used to be a movie critic and he, Andy asked yesterday are your dad's reviews anywhere and my literal text back was why yeah well, I was like <laughs> because I was like let me we're celebrate. not reversing this bit we're like, oh you, you thought that's what I was doing <laughs> I was like this is my joke I was celebrating I wanted I was like I bet Dez had like some some heaters yeah, about he like mid '90s stuff. He I was did. curious what he thought of, um, specifically Scorsese's Age of Innocence. But yeah. anyway, um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. No, distract. no, but it, please, this is this is Thursday. We do this on Thursdays. Um, but I was really, really excited by these pieces, not just because I thought that the criticism was so sharp and interesting and made me want to go see exhibits that he was writing about when I'm in New York next. But one of the really nice things about it, I think, it wasn't just that it is more measured, long form, intellectually probing criticism, which I think we still like and wish there was a place for in the in the discourse, it was because he was reviewing things that have had not just years, decades, in some cases, centuries to settle in. Yes. What he was talking about so movingly was, and insightfully, I think, was a conversation, an ongoing conversation with a piece of art and culture, culture that made it, the culture that it reflected, and then also the culture that continues to try and engage with it. And that is something that is absolutely absent from a social media dominated landscape, right? There is no, there's, it's just perpetual now. Yeah. And it's a perpetual argument. Um, so did, did I solve it? No, I, I mean, I just, you know, I was even, uh, I was even thinking about like a bunch of like the sort of more recent films that have come out and a lot of the most probing, interesting criticism that I've read about Killers of the Flower Moon mm -hmm. or The Killer or, or a variety of movies in recent memory has been on Letterboxd. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I found a, a bunch of people that I like on Letterboxd and I'm always really curious to see what they think of the films. And I sometimes need to like not read them until after I've talked about these movies because they get into my head, which is really the sign of, I think, really thoughtful mm -hmm. engagement and discourse around 
around a, a cultural object. So there's but, some other stuff coming that came out but, of Casey's. Oh, God. But I will also just say it, it, it is sort of a facile for comparison for me to make because one thing that a, an art critic at a legacy magazine like The New Yorker will not be doing is reviewing The Nevers. The sure. Joss Whedon series that lasted well, one season. We all got bills to pay, right? No, I'm not saying he shouldn't do it. I'm just saying that like it's a di- it is a different enterprise when you're like this is a new thing. Yeah, I better just sort of check in with it as opposed to, uh, aha, finally the centuries old conversation between Manet and Degas can be, <laughs> yeah, interrogated on wanna, a large maybe scale. Maybe we should uh, mm-hmm. table our discussion of White Lotus season three, mm-hmm. set in Thailand. Mm. So it's now going to not likely air until 2025, but maybe we should mm-hmm. shoot to talk about it in 2030. When finally we can... <laughs> I, listen, if he, I will leave the studio and walk into Bill's office and be like, hard pivot for the watch. We are doing everything on a five-year five five delay. Yeah, I, This is actually a great idea for a podcast. Uh, if, if we don't... <laughs> this is a million-dollar idea. Kaya, why, Kaya why, why are you looking at job openings? <laughs> Kai's on ZipRecruiter right now. I'm just saying, if all of 2024, if we just do 2019. Yeah, but the problem is, is we were around in 2019 doing that stuff. We then. do a re-listen podcast about our podcast. I bet you you would do that before you would watch everything from 2019 again. That's correct. Other news that came out of this HBO, uh, this HBO mm-hmm. Dog and Pony show that Casey did today was that White Lotus is going to be delayed until 2025. Last of Us season two likely not until 2025. Probably not what you want uh, if you're HBO since Last of Us was arguably one of the most popular shows uh, of 2023. We've also got Stephen King, the Stephen King verse slash it spinoff, uh, Welcome to Dairy, which is coming from the Muschietti's. Uh, that is probably not going to come until. 25, but and, and we've discussed this. That is unrelated to Dairy Girls. And unrelated to Castle Rock, which was on Hulu mm-hmm. and was about the fictional town in Maine that Stephen King set many of his stories. What we are getting mm-hmm. in the summer of 24, by all accounts, House of the Motherfucking Dragon. Yeah. Back up in this piece. Peace, love, and understanding. That and it according to the reporting I read today, that at this uh, media event, they saw a trailer. Mm-hmm. That they were not allowed to speak about, but that it, but that it exists because yes. the show was in production and production was affected by the writer strike. Although I, I don't know what that means entirely because uh, a lot of UK based shows employing UK based actors were did not have to shut down. But wouldn't it really just mean that the you the the writer of whoever was show running House of the Dragon probably Ryan Condal couldn't. He was definitely encouraged to not be a part of it. Yeah. I do remember that in the early days of the WGA strike, but he's back at work now. And so I'm, I'm perhaps it's been back up for a few weeks. We it's going to be a strange know. next year. All jokes aside, I mm-hmm. do think that some things that we were hoping for, like Andor season two, mm-hmm. uh, last of us season two, like some things that I, obviously like there, there are greater issues at hand mm-hmm. in the sort of struggle to find a fair way to make this stuff. Um, so if we have to wait for a year to watch, fucking Andor, like, it's totally fine. It's just, I, I do think it'll be an odd year, both on the small and big screen, in terms of what stuff actually makes it to the screen. Already, Disney has moved a bunch of stuff to 2025. Mm-hmm. We've seen so many blockbusters get shuffled. Uh, we'll be talking later on about a big piece in Variety about Marvel. Mm-hmm. Um, but Joe Biden is going to have to wait two more years to find out what happens the, to, to, the, to the entity. Yeah. To the entity in uh, Mission Impossible. We're referring to the fact that it was reported that Joe Biden... Uh, saw Dead Reckoning Part One, and it really scared the 
the Willikers out of him. Do you think about that he, AI? But do you think for the previous ten years he's been pro AI because he saw her, the Spike Jones film? Yeah, and was like that's charming. Yeah, or he was a big Miss Minutes fan from season one of Loki. No one tell him about season two. <laughs> <laughs> you telling me Miss Minutes broke bad, Jack? It sounds nothing like Joe Biden. But if I'm, it did sound like Joe yeah. Biden, would you be more enthusiastic about him? No, I think that what you if are Joe really, Biden sounded yeah. more like Randy Savage. A hundred—that's like the Dark Brandon meme. That's what he sounded like. But I also think Chris and I and people listening to the podcast are probably with me on this. Like over time, I think you've really keyed into what the great impressionists—not Manet or Degas—I mean, like from Saturday Night Live, you know, like Rich Little. And Bill Hader, what they understand is that the the like the truly great impressions you just have to believe they're not they're they are as much spirit as they are um, accuracy. Sure, right. And yeah. so when you do Joe Biden as Macho Man Randy Savage, it's what I'm kind of longing for in a president. Yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking about. I want to take just a minute or two here to talk about the state of the Sheridan verse and the expansion and contraction of Yellowstone. Yeah, I think you've earned this right. Um, Kaya, can you open another tab with ZipRecruiter? <laughs> I would like to. Go ahead. Uh, everybody outside this window is waving signs being like, sir, sir, please talk <laughs> they, about. They do have tears in their eyes. Here's what's fucking rad about Taylor. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So. Two new spinoffs. Were, it was announced that Yellowstone will end, as everybody expected, next November uh, with the final part of the fifth season airing. They've already aired part A, 5A. Uh, 5B is reported to probably not feature Kevin Costner, who uh, is in a contract dispute mm-hmm. with Yellowstone, the, the makers of Yellowstone, largely about how much time uh, reportedly he was going to be spending on the set of Yellowstone and how he would balance that with the shooting of what he is hoping to be a trilogy but is releasing at least the first two parts of Horizon uh, next summer, which I'm honestly pretty jacked for. So Yellowstone will be ending in November. There are two new spinoffs announced. 1944, mm-hmm. which is along with uh, you know 1923 and 1873, I believe. 1881? 1881. I get confused because of the dark Deutsch, guys in show. Deutschland 86. It was 1883. I was right the first time. Yeah, the dark show was 1899. Yeah. 1883. All right. With, <laughs> what are we doing? 1883 <laughs> with Tim McGraw and Faith Hill. Respect. Put some respect on that show's name. That was really I good. I watched that. All of it? I got, I got it. Uh, how many of them? Happy ending, right? <laughs> yeah, super. Uh, 1923 with Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren. I think that's coming back for another season. I'm not sure. There's talk of that. I don't know if it's actually... 1944, okay. which I got to be honest, that sounds a little bit like Dub Dub 2. It sounds like Greatest Generation's coming through. So <laughs> Not according to Nancy Shepard. Color me pretty interested, though. Do we... Anything else announced about it? Like I'm just basing it when... I'm, when it's set, if it's not about World War II, it's going to be really funny. <laughs> if it's just about, it's about the war at home, just about a gal who's waiting for her hubby to come home. I don't know. I mean, like, it, I, I bet Taylor Sheridan is setting this in World War II. What? Here's the best fucking news I've ever heard, though. Okay. This guy is just going to end Yellowstone. Yeah. He's going to start a new Yellowstone and call it 2024. That's not true. Yes. It's just called, so it's, so the culmination <laughs> of the years is just next year. Yeah. Quote wow. from Variety, featuring new cast members and locations with some crossover characters as well. Uh, 2024 is rumored to star Matthew McConaughey. And this is not a quote because this is just the straight shooter talking. I have a feeling this one's moving to Texas because Taylor Sheridan owns the Four Sixes Ranch in Texas. Yeah. Matthew McConaughey, great Texan. 
Famously. Uh, a possible gubernatorial candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that he would be like, why don't I move to Montana? The and brand is strong in the Lone Star State frame. Wasn't there also like, and you said this, you've told me about this, I think, a particularly egregious would-be backdoor pilot for a Texas spinoff? I believe it was the fourth season where Jimmy, one of the characters mm-hmm. of Yellowstone, is sent to Texas to like learn true cattle ranching. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, cool. Well, I'll see Jimmy on a spinoff show some other time or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they just do half of the season is just Jimmy in Texas. And, and, and eating uh, some gal, let like me guess, a vet- veterinarian. And they filmed that all on property that Taylor owns. <laughs> king stays the king. Hey, man. Uh, I guess my question is Can you imagine being his accountant and being like, you fucking did what? His <laughs> accountant. Are you fucking, are you serious? Uh, <laughs> and just like a little tear goes down the accountant's cheek. Like, you mean I can write this off twice? <laughs> can we do a meme? Where it's just the scene from the early in Wolf of Wall Street, a movie that I have now seen uh-huh. very recently and would love to talk about more. Um, where it's like Leo in the diner in his suit, just eating eggs, and Jonah Hill comes up to him. He's like, is that your car? He's like, is, that, is that your car? Can you can you just put right on Leo Taylor Sheridan and then right on Jonah Hill Taylor Sheridan's accountant? accountant? So uh that's happening. And and much like Timothy Chalamet mm-hmm. in Little Women, I will watch. Wow. You know what I mean? I um, The bar is set pretty high because the last few of these that were announced, 1923 is announced with Helen Mirren and Harrison Ford starring on a television show for the Paramount Plus streaming service. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, there was a show, I don't know if you saw it, it was called Lioness. Yes. Um, Special Nicole ups. Kidman and Morgan Freeman yeah. on that show. And now this potential 2024 show uh, with Matthew McConaughey. So what would 1944, like who would have to be in this show? No, Matthew McConaughey's in, in, in 2024. So who would have to be in 1944 for you to feel like the the standard is being held high? I'm, I'm not joking around when yeah. I say Tom Hanks. Exactly. And Tom Hanks was in 1883. Oh, right. I forgot about that. So like, let's get, let's get some Private Riot up and running. This is, this idea is just so goddamn crazy. It's probably true. <laughs> This is, I think you just I did mean, it. Did, I think you just broke let me news. Let me just say, he could do worse. A, he yeah. already fucking loves that time period. Yeah. Has he made several quite definitive works on it? For sure. Mm-hmm. Has Tom Hanks had a just absolute knockout hit in a while? He has not. No. Could he do worse? He could. He could. This is my new podcast styling, asking rhetorical questions and answering them. I, I should note that Chris is wearing a black tank top and standing up. <laughs> This is his new style. Yeah. Man, you're really good at this casting game. I'm really good at passionately mm-hmm. hyping myself up for Taylor Sheridan shows. Yeah. Uh, Lawman Bass Reeves comes soon. Have you checked that out yet? I haven't checked it out yet. I will. Okay. Um, Dennis Quaid is in that. I love Dennis Quaid. All right. You want to talk about Marvel? Was there anything else from t- like today? I was going to ask, mm. when I woke up and I saw this news, aside mm. from the Casey stuff, like, but just all the like, and this is coming, and this is coming, and this is moving, but we're doing this. Mm-hmm. The little voice in the back of my head that casts Tom Hanks and Taylor Sheridan shows mm-hmm. also said, I wonder if the SAG strike is winding up. I can't say definitively whether there was any connection between these events, but I will say that from my own uh, little voice reporting around town, which mm-hmm. is talking to three people, um, there's a lot of confidence and optimism that the SAG strike will end perhaps as soon as this week. I, I have no insight, yeah, but there is a there is a sense, 
And as everyone knows, like when people get, you don't need, it doesn't take much for people to just run with stuff here and, sure. and, and start to feel a little more bullish about the bleeding will stop. And now they can actually take a look at their schedules and see what's possible. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app and you're good to go. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at UGG.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Okay, so... We've spent a lot of time over the course of the last month mm-hmm. uh, doing uh, air pressure checks on Marvel's tires mm-hmm. because we've been driving the Loki car off the road. Uh, as, as as documented, I, I I kind of enjoyed the last episode. You you okay. felt betrayed by All that, right. yeah. But then today, uh, or actually just this week, I think it was maybe a day or two ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tatiana Siegel at Variety ran a huge piece called uh, uh, "It's Marvel in Crisis," essentially. It was actually called. Crisis at Marvel. So, my apologies. Wow. Um, and I'm just going to go through some of the sort of bigger takeaways here. Mm-hmm. That is that okay? And we can maybe yeah. I'm going to I'm going to stop at each place and, and get your temperature on this. All thing. right. So it's a pretty epic takedown of the current state of Marvel, uh, reiterating some things we know that they make too much. The quality control is slipping. The VFX is terrible, and the fan fervor seems to have crested slash start started to drop. Okay. Uh. The first half of the piece, I would say, or the first quarter of the piece, certainly deals with the fallout from Jonathan Major's domestic violence charges. That is uh, pretty much getting worse. That that whole story uh, with yeah. additional um, additional cases being talked about, mm-hmm. and um, and that it is it is going to trial. Yes, this is going to happen. When you're talking about something like this, it seems pretty shallow to connect it to whether or not like 
a movie franchise is successful or not, but I'm I'm just saying that because that's exactly what I'm about to do because yeah. that's what sort of the piece deals with. But obviously there are things that are more important than whether or not fucking Kang uh, is well executed in this uh, series. That being said, um, there is some apparently internal debate about whether or not he either legally is going to be able to continue in this franchise, whether or not they want him to, mm-hmm. and whether or not creatively they think this is the right place to go because for as much as Majors' performances have drawn attention, uh, creatively it seems like maybe the Kang thing and the multiversal thing is not is not quite working for Marvel. Yeah, I think that's... There were a couple things about this, and and I appreciate you, you the clarification. I think that it's important to say that like we are talking about this in the scheme of Marvel's creative and yeah. corporate decision-making, totally separate and apart from the more important human story that's actually driving a lot of this. There are some interesting perspectives on it in this piece. One was... I can give you the... I was going to give you the quote. Yeah, you you do it. You give me the thing over here. Quote, Marvel is truly fucked with the whole Kang angle, which I'm just screaming out here. It's the Kangle. Yeah. They are truly fucked with the whole Kangle, said one top dealmaker who has seen the final Loki episode. By the way, I'm sitting right across from that dealmaker right now. Is it Kai or me? <laughs> There's only one of it could be either of you, but only one of you just put Tom Hanks on the Paramount Plus service. Uh, so this person goes on to say this person has seen the end of the the finale of Loki and adds this, which I don't think we'd even considered. They haven't had an opportunity to rewrite until very recently because of the strike. I don't see a path on how they move forward with him. So the implication in this piece and in quotes like that are that Loki season two is running the way Loki season two is intended to run, which isn't to say that they didn't do a lot of stuff in post and move things around, but it suggests, at least in my eyes, that there was not some great rejiggering of the yes, first few which episodes. which was sort of what we had sort of suggested maybe in the beginning. So yes. it just shows you how much we know. It, but it also, I think that was, if, I don't think we even paused because I was being just extremely negative about the episode as a whole, but my sense is, is that if it was a, we could toggle in or toggle out of this, it would be more of a glorified cameo. Mm -hmm. Victor Timely would have been a variant in one episode, but Victor Timely is running wild through the TVA in in this next episode. He is essentially a cast member on this season of television. So the fact that, so so the, the confirmation that this is, they were just moving ahead, hoping for the best, fingers crossed, but that they were actually unable to even do the sort of creative reworking that they might want to because of the writer's strike. I guess what gives me pause there is, I don't know how much writers would have been involved in that decision-making, to be honest with you. Feige's in charge once they deliver the stems, as they say. And uh, Kevin Wright, the Marvel executive, and the various directors seem to have more creative say than in other television enterprises. But, uh, yeah, this is, this is, they're just... As a a side note, I always find it interesting to read these behind-the-scenes pieces uh, in sports, especially in the NBA, when it's like, oh, here's the here's the sort of TikTok and and behind the scenes of like the James Harden trade. James mm-hmm. Harden, Philadelphia 76er player, just got traded to the Los Angeles Clippers this week. And you read these after the aftermath pieces, these, these post-action takes, and you can kind of start to kind of sort out like, oh, who's this piece benefiting most? And I know that maybe like- This what, is the, Brian Curtis calls this the empty the notebook piece. It's right? the empty the notebook, but the notebook is usually like tethered to this writer's source Mm -hmm. and i don't know who tatiana siegel's sources are it was interesting to read this piece get to the end and be like i don't know who comes off good in this you know what i mean like i don't know at the end you're like 
it seems like this is an, an entire billion dollar operation that's pretty much dependent on Kevin Feige being able to steer the ship, right? Like, and that it's not actually this dispersed parliament of creatives who are trying to make up like their minds about where to take this thing in decades into the future. Right. No, they're just they're they're having their retreat in Palm Springs and one guy in the corner is like, maybe Dr. Doom? Yeah. It's really notable. And we talked to Joanna Robinson about this when she was on the podcast to talk about the book she co-wrote, MCU. But it is worth revisiting that during the the existence of these movies in this larger cinematic universe, the Thanos story is the one that everyone points to as like, ah, that was that was peak Marvel. Nailed that was it. definitive. They nailed it. It's revealed in the book that that was really, the inclusion of the character was almost an inside joke for fans put in by Joss Whedon that then was from that one just wet noodle thrown at the wall, they built something rather methodically, you know, and then in, and then cast Brolin and then it all worked out. Mm-hmm. This is the opposite of that. They could have done anything from the decades of Marvel storytelling. They decided on this character. They decided on an actor and they decided to lay the groundwork precisely this way, primarily through television, through two seasons of Loki and then in Ant-Man 3. Mm-hmm. And I do think that if, I'm not saying the obituaries of Marvel are going to be written anytime soon, but in talking about this and reading the story and listening to Joanna on Matt Bellamy's podcast, The Town, the fact that they were like, yes, the the big villain for the next decade of Marvel storytelling is going to be a supporting character on a TV show and then the heavy in Ant-Man 3 mm-hmm. sounds insane. Well, they continued with that. I guess the definition of insanity would be to do the same thing over and over mm-hmm. again, expecting different results. So the other peg of this piece is that we're on the eve or the week eve of the Marvels coming out. Mm-hmm. This is the sequel to 2019's Captain Marvel. And uh, this apparently costs $250 million to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is attempting to share the kind of spotlight with Brie Larson would be Tiona Paris, who plays Monica Rambeau, who we saw in, mm-hmm. she was a supporting character in WandaVision yep. uh, in 2021. And Amon Vellani, who was uh, seen in, she was Miss Marvel in mm-hmm. 2022's Miss Marvel. So you're trying to essentially build a blockbuster that is four year, comes four years after its original film and is now sharing the spotlight with another two major characters who have been introduced in these TV shows. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of like still trying to, to play out that string of like, we're going to use the TV shows as equal playing grounds as the films, that we're going to assume that the Marvel customer is as engaged in episode six of Miss mm-hmm. Marvel as they are in... Endgame. I I don't know. I mean, like that. There isn't there isn't that need to like to make these connective. It's it's crazy, and I, you know, I I I do think, and honestly, I still would love the opportunity to talk to him someday. I I think Kevin Feige, from all accounts, is a good faith producer and creative person who really falls in love with these uh, artists and characters and wants to do big canvas storytelling Mm -hmm. and like nobody's trying to make something bad nobody's trying to prove a point but and this is absolutely a stop to our boss like is there a little like belichick post brady here and is downy in in the sense that are there there seems there's there's potentially i understand for for both career longevity project longevity and most importantly cost control there is a, a there are a lot of reasons to talk yourself into thinking 
that what people love more than anything else is interconnected IP storytelling with characters and references and special effects that you recognize. Not, we love these six people and we love them playing these parts. Mm -hmm. I understand why you would trick yourself into thinking that. But the decision-making from that assumption is really bizarre. Because let's just say Captain Marvel came out in, what, 2019? That's right. I think you and I are on the record that we saw that movie. (laughs) We definitely did. Um, I think it is a pretty bad movie. I am on the record by saying I think that Brie Larson has many talents, but this that she is kind of miscast in this part. None of that matters because the movie made like close to a billion dollars, mm-hmm. didn't it? It is a huge, 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 huge hit for them. It is bizarre mismanagement of a potential new pillar of the franchise to wait, A, wait four years for a sequel. COVID and, aside, yeah. COVID, I mean, I understand why, they, but it yeah. is, if you just pull all the way back, and then intentionally depower a very powerful star. And I, I say that intentionally because one of the complaints about the character is that she's just can do anything. She's deus ex machina, right? Right. But to say that she is not worthy of her own franchise, what she is one third of a super group that is not that super, quite frankly. Um, no, again, no disrespect to the performers, but Tiona Paris's character, which I don't even remember what they're calling her because that character has been called three different things in the comics. Mm-hmm. Is it is it binary? Is it... Um, uh, I, I don't know. I don't even know. And Ms. Marvel, which was a fairly delightful television show that was their lowest rated television show to date, you're taking away the one reason you had to make the movie in the first place and saying all of this is the same, nothing is particularly special, and you're going to continue to consume what we serve to you. And there's an arrogance to that, frankly, that I think is being communicated now to the viewing public. And I'll end with this point. First of all, I'll never end. But I will pause this rant with a point that I made before, which is it just feels unfair. It feels unfair to her. It feels unfair to their female-fronted movies that all of this is cresting right now in front of this movie, which is definitely not worse than uh, uh, Ant-Man 3 or The Eternals or a lot of the stuff that's come out in the last two years. So there's another thing that's here about the Marvels, which is that it required a month of reshoots, which isn't particularly rare for Marvel. They often do weeks of reshoots or they build in, budget in the idea of reshoots. But that... uh, Nia DaCosta, who is the director of the Marvels, mm-hmm. was already working on another film when Marvels was in post-production. When I read that, yeah. and when I read this next bit, which is about Blade, which is that, um, quote, Feige is pulling the plug on scripts and projects that aren't working. Case in point, the Blade reboot with Mahershal Ali signed on for the eponymous role of a vampire. Things look promising for a 2023 release date, but the project has gone through at least five writers, two directors, and one shutdown six weeks before production One person familiar with the script permutation says the story at one point morphed into a narrative led by women and filled with life lessons. Blade was relegated to the fourth lead, a bizarre idea considering that the studio had a two-time Oscar winner, Ali, on board. Amid reports that Ali was ready to exit over script issues, Feige went back to the drawing board and hired Michael Green, the Oscar-nominated winner, writer of Logan, to start anew. Uh, regardless of like how you feel about Blade being taught life lessons or not, I really don't have like a particular affinity for Blade, so I don't really mm-hmm. even know what Blade movie I want. My point is more, uh, we may have hit a point where we like know too much about Marvel. Yes, um, right. And I was I was thinking about this 
Today I was on the big picture. We were doing a David Fincher draft. Mm. We were talking a lot about David Fincher. I've been thinking a lot about David Fincher, and he's notorious for this exacting way he works and doing dozens of takes of seemingly pedestrian scenes in his movies of all, all manner of things in his film to get the thing that he wants. And that's the rap on him. And so far, he has never missed, really. So people are like, that's a great way to work. We have not seen takes one through 88. We see the 89th take yeah. of, of Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike meeting up in a bookstore or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I don't hear about why he didn't like those 89 takes or 88 takes. You know, I don't, we don't know about what Rosamund Pike did wrong or whether or not the line wasn't working. And my, my point is really more that they're in a bad zone right now where they are leaking from too many different places right? so that they can't make the mistakes that I think are probably a lot more common on a day-to-day, project-to-project basis in Hollywood than we know about. Yes. And without it being like, by the way, someone had a terrible fucking idea for Blade and they <laughs> didn't do it. That's fucked up. I mean, it's not but, fucked up like this is a crime. It's just like you can't kind of go through the process but, that you go through if it's going to always wind up being reported because people are like, this isn't working. I think, but I think the key difference in the comparison you're making is that David Fincher is one artist who knows what he wants. Yeah, and then he makes Gone Girl and, and, and he, it's not. And, yeah. and it's, what, it's, it's simply he knows. He's in charge of the movie and he knows. The sprawling multi-billion dollar industry that is Marvel is not being run that way. And it, I don't know how you could. You can't run a studio the way you make make a picture, yeah. as Mank might say in a David Fincher movie. Um, you simply can't. And they're answering to too many different... Uh, masters is the wrong word, but um, they have to please a lot of people. But I think the most dangerous thing here now is that they are trying to please a an audience that is fluid and not fixed in their minds. But I also think that the audience is slowly becoming closer to like an NBA fan who is as interested in transactions as they are games. And mm. I do think that there is like a beast that needs to be fed when it comes to casting rumors, production rumors, scheduling rumors, like all this stuff that surrounds it. And I like we're as much a part of that machine as anything else where it's like, I don't know if other things that Hollywood does, like I don't even know if early Marvel could have stood up to this level of speculation and this level of scrutiny. Like there's probably, like when you read Joanna's book and you read about the making of Iron Man, which is considered one of the great successes yes. of Marvel, a lot of Iron Man was being made up on the set. Like it could have gone well, a lot of different bad ways. But also when you're just, the stakes and the conversation are different when you're on the way up versus when you're yes. on the top. And one thing that isn't talked about that often because we're talking, in fact, instead about how well it all worked in the end, is how a lot of those early movies are pretty mid. They're fine, you know, like Thor. Okay, Thor's fine. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, the first Iron Man, I think, really works. Um, Captain America, the first Avenger is charming. But they weren't what they are now, but also they didn't need to be, because they didn't come, it's not just that they didn't come with the stakes and expectations, it's that they didn't cost so much. Yeah. And... Yeah. So, so we're viewing them all through this the prism of, boy, Sam Presti really put together a world championship team, which he never will do because he's always going to well, keep. Well, that's the funny thing is that the uh, addendum to the Blade reporting mm -hmm. in this variety, like the last bit, is that now they are considering yes. going back and making a $100 million version of Blade, which is like, 
Well, what if we kept our draft picks? Well, but there's two addendums, not a addend- but there's two pieces in this thing that are the takeaways. One, them saying maybe we're maybe we're scaling this all wrong. Not everything needs to be because the Eternals cost two hundred fifty million dollars, which is absolutely batshit crazy. But so they're saying, okay, maybe we can make some smaller things at scale, and that will make more sense for us. Because they, up till now, they were operating in a realm where they announce an Armor Wars TV show, they do a full writers' room and write what I believe to be an entire season of television for this Don Cheadle television show, and then decide, you know what, this is too expensive. This needs to be a movie. So they throw out everything they did, and they're rewriting it as a movie. But what does that mean? That just means they're still spending upwards of $200 million for something that was sus to begin with. So if they are, in theory, saying we're going to spend less and, you know, who knows whether that will make better product, but it might make more sustainable product, might make more consistently interesting or consistent product. But on the other end of this article, the other big piece of news that's been aggregated is what? That they are fully aware that they probably will need to just say Avengers Assemble again. Yeah that they will have to call Downey and Evans. And ScarJo. And ScarJo and all of these people who have been uh, exiled one way or another, whether for cost purposes, whether they didn't want to do it anymore, or whether they actually just killed they the character. They get fucking board seats out of this if they were. <laughs> That's the thing. Do you think Nelson Peltz's takeover yeah. is hostile? Wait till you see Disney chairman Scarlett Johansson's reign of... Um, <laughs> The She's am- like Jonathan Levine. <laughs> I don't think people understand that Jonathan this would Glazer, be... Jonathan Glazer, I'm sorry. Jonathan Glazer gets like a billion dollar budget. <laughs> for Give zo- it to Jonathan Levine too. I don't care. For zone of interest too? Yeah. I don't think people are ready to have the conversation that this Avengers Assemble movie would be the most expensive movie ever made before they even shot in a frame of footage. I know. Um, if they do that. But they also know that that's available to them. And I think it's baked into this idea that that at the end of the multiversal storytelling is their movie version of the comic book story Secret Wars, which kind of crams all the different variants and things into one new universe going forward. And when you do that kind of story, yeah, Chris Evans can show up swinging Thor's hammer. Yeah, I think the issue that they've also got, though, is that uh, even the ones... So Guardians is essentially over, or at least James Gunn isn't doing them anymore, uh, and I assume they're over. Then you've got Thor, which seems to have diminishing returns as a Taika Waititi kind of like, let's just make it up as we go along project. Mm -hmm. So there's not really anyone present who is the reliable... Let's bring Chris Paul in and just like, to dribble I love that we're, we really just want to do an NBA podcast today. I could, <laughs> I, I could tell. I, it is, I, you're, I, I just kind of want to go back to your point about the leaking. Like, Mar- I, Marvel fair, didn't leak yeah, for I, a long time. I, and, I don't, and I don't care if they get leaked on. You know what I mean? Like, I love Joanna's book. It's not like I'm like, this is the problem we, we need do, to Remember keep... that drop, the LA leakers? Can no, we but that? we need to keep like Maggie Haberman away from the White House so they can <laughs> do their work. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, uh, I wonder how many uh-huh. other, at various points in the history of Hollywood, seemingly like perfect shops had a lot of stuff behind the scenes where it's like, oh, man, all of them. You, can't, you can't imagine the fucking ideas all. that George Lucas had before New Hope was actually locked, you know? That's all out there. Yeah. He had some really bad ideas. Like all, all, like, like when Luke shows up and is just like, the only thing that makes sense in this galaxy is a flat tax. Like people left him out of the boardroom. <laughs> So he put that into the prequel trilogy. <laughs> but the history of Hollywood is too, much like there were two Englands in the show, The Gold, there are two histories. Uh-huh. There's the one that 
that was everything worked out on these movies. They were hits. And then there are people who worked on them and they were like, I cannot believe we yes. got away with that. Yeah. That is always the story for any movie and any scale of, of mishap behind the scenes. One of the things that is weird, I think, at this moment, and this trying to make this, this conversation forward, to spin it forward a little bit, is I think that in previous eras of blockbuster rise and fall or studios, studio dominance, and then when those eras end, is that like with empires, someone else, not strikes back, but like literal empires, someone else shows up and like pantses them. Mm-hmm. It's like, guess what? We're doing this now. And who's doing that now? And, you know, Peacemaker? It, it, well, that's my question. In this moment, like I guess the music analogy would be Nirvana coming out and then suddenly no one is playing hair metal at the Whiskey yeah, Go-Go yeah, yeah. anymore. Like that looks silly. Because of the consolidation in the industry and also just the sheer size, scope, and money involved in all of this, what is the competition? What is the alternative? And, you know, we can say, well, Jim Gunn's DCU is going to have a different vision. Sure. And as we've said before, I think it'll be good, both because I think it'll be creatively um, inspired because he's good at this, but also because it just won't have the baggage of 15 years of Marvel. They are starting over. But what else is there? And it, it, that, to me, as much as anything else, is why we are still going to be having this conversation after the Marvels in six months, you know, well, to be clear, we're not going to talk about the Marvels until 2029. 20, you know, we're going to wait. Let it. No, wait. no, late, late 28. <laughs> really sink in. Late, late 28. Why, when, are you busy early 29? No, because we're waiting five years. Oh, okay. We're waiting five years. You're going to be canvassing for Lauren Boebert, I believe. <laughs> canvassing? <laughs> well, presidential yeah. in 28. Um, canvassing and vaping. Yeah. But that's, that's when we'll talk about it. Do you want to talk about bodies today or you want to wait till Monday? But do you have any... I know we've been doing so much Marvel. Oh, can I make one more? I'll make one more really strained uh, sports metaphor. Okay. Uh, Joe Lacob, who owns the Golden State Warriors, Mm -hmm. uh, was widely derided for his idea of building a bridge to the future, that they were going to have a championship caliber team in the present and also be building the next version of that team on the bench by drafting all these guys. um, Wiseman. Moody and James Wiseman. Nobody needs to hear this. But I am struck by the idea that Kevin Feige and Marvel are following something of the same blueprint yeah. because they have had those, those X-Men and Fantastic Four rights for a minute. Mm-hmm. And if they ever felt like they really needed to pull the emergency brake to like get people to be like, I mean, you know how I felt about <laughs> Reed Richards' absence from WandaVision. We all do. If they wanted to really, really stop the leak, not the leaking to the press, but like the gas leaking out of the tank. Mm-hmm. They could have an X-Men or Fantastic Four. Well, Fantastic Four is dated. It's coming out in 25. Yes, but I mean even like they could have... They could announce it. Whoever it's supposed to be showing up at the end of Loki. Well, I think... Well, I, a couple of things. One, they absolutely should not do that at the end of Loki. Yeah, that would fuck, that'd be fucked up. They need to... <laughs> make movies now that feel like movies and feel like events that make people feel excited to see them and keep them. It would be funny if they had Adam Driver, Jake Gyllenhaal, and John Krasinski all walk out dressed as Reed Richards at the end of Loki and it'll be like, which one of us is the real one? Like that Black Mirror Choose Your Own Adventure episode? Yeah. (laughs) I think the... It really suits Feige, regardless of the truth, it definitely suits the narrative that has emerged in all of this reporting, and Joanna's referenced this too, that he is really taking his time with this one. This has become a talking point. I think it is probably accurate 
but I think it is also very good spin that even when Chapek was just like, release everything, release it all, mm-hmm. uh, in that now ill-fated, infamous press conference in 20 or 21, that he didn't say anything about X-Men and Fantastic Four, that he knows he has to get yeah, these right. And it, in, when they launched Disney+, Plus, they were like, there will never be a time when there's not superhero content on but he still held those back, whatever they, whatever his plans were, whatever his vision for them was, and whatever was already decided upon. In some of the reporting this week, I think even in this Variety piece, there was a like a throwaway line being like, now that the writer's strike is over, he's taking meetings with people about the X-Men in earnest. It's like, I feel like that probably started before the strike. Never Let's occurred hope so. to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also... I feel very strongly about this, and I think we said it to Joanna, not having the rights to these characters is one of the reasons why the MCU worked. Mm-hmm. And if 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 Fantastic Four is announced as having like deep, deep connections to like the last few chapters of the Darkhold, they're fucked. Like the if you consider everything to be spun out of what already existed, you are devaluing it now without saying that it, you know, connect it later. Get to Secret Wars or whatever, but make something good. I will also say, just as a, on a personal level, Chris, I know you're resistant to joining the hottest growing social media network in the Andy, world, you Facebook. To, you really need to have your computer fucking thrown out the window. But the beauty of doing this podcast with you <laughs> and then logging on to check out what my high school homies are up to <laughs> is that I am frequently serviced wild ass website Mar- fan casting yeah. that it just promised me yeah. that Jake Gyllenhaal as Reed Richards and... Our friend of the pod, Evan Mossback. They're just is the waiting thing. for Duncan Crabtree Ireland to give them the thumbs up. Just the one Joaquin Phoenix thumbs up, and <laughs> it is go time. And by the way, I know you nerds are like, Jake was already Mysterio. Guess what, dorks? Multiversal storytelling. It's all um, connected. What do you want to do? Let's. I think we should save bodies. Let's save it for Monday. This is a show that um, people have been coming up to us on the street, tears in their eyes, because I think they watch bodies, saying, sir, sir. There's a new Netflix show. There should be a death pool about like when you'll like a show. Why, why am I the bad guy in that story? You're not. Impress you're, me. You're not. Come T- on. Taylor Sheridan tried. He didn't try for me. <laughs> Andy, it was great to see you. What, so bodies on Monday. Bodies and Loki on Monday. And just or if m- you don't want to talk about Loki, we can keep it moving. We can we can just discuss I, the Texas Rangers. We can do whatever you want. I think that we're like Lawman Bass Reeves. Mm-hmm. I think we're really. I think Monday show is going to really depend on uh, Cowboys-Eagles results. That is actually quite true. It's really the only Thank thing Thank you I to Kaya watch. McMullen for her professionalism today. Indeed. And for this amazing room and the vibes it brought us. And thank you to all the Hollywood dreamers out there who tune in to us twice a week and are like, man, those guys really hate everything. <laughs> <laughs> Just reach for the stars. Reach for the stars, kids. 